You spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. The Casper mattress combines four layers of pressure-relieving foams for all-night comfort. It's softer under your shoulders and firmer under your hips for a healthy alignment and extra support. Plus, breathable foams are designed to keep you cool all night long. Delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, size box. With bedding, frames, and even a glow light that helps you fall asleep, Casper has everything you need to create the perfect sleep environment. Casper also has free shipping and returns, so you'll be able to try your Casper mattress for 100 nights, risk-free, in your own home. Go to Casper.com and use the code PRIMARYPLAYLIST for $100 towards purchase of select mattresses. Additional terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms. Welcome to Your Primary Playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish-Sussman. The list of potential Democratic challengers to President Trump is growing. It ranges from Blasio, John Delaney, Gabbard, Inslee, Klobuchar, Beto, Tim Ryan. And look, I think the voters are usually right, and so I'm actually pretty optimistic about our chances. Buttigieg, Gillibrand, Harris, Hickenlooper, Bernie, Swalwell, Marion Williamson. If you're like me, looking at the field of 2020 candidates, it can feel a little bit daunting. There's a lot of good candidates, and honestly, I like most of them. It's hard to figure out what the differences are and why they matter. I mean, it's hard for me, even after 15 years of working in politics. I'll read an article that someone's position is outside the norm, but outside the norm how? And maybe I like outside the norm. And how different is the norm compared to what Trump is offering? So we're going to dig into all of this for you on this show. We're going to tackle the issues the 2020 candidates are tackling. There isn't one single way to think about these big, complex problems, so we're going to talk about all the different pathways forward. And then we're going to talk about where the candidates stand. Before we dive into these issues, let's do some scene setting. So the 2008 primary started as a big open field of candidates and turned into a bitterly divided battle between Obama and Clinton. People were wishing there was just one candidate to rally around. So in comes the 2016 election, where Hillary Clinton entered the scene as that anointed candidate. But this left an opening for Bernie Sanders to run as an underdog, catching more traction as the opposition than a lot of people had anticipated. So all this brings us to 2020. That and the unexpected election of Donald Trump has opened the door for anyone and everyone who's ever wanted to run for president. I mean, this time around, voters seem welcoming of all the candidates. But even so, we are already starting to feel candidate fatigue. It's hard to keep track of who's running and what we're supposed to know about them. We're going to talk about all of this with the women who know them best. Who better to start us off? The woman who led the Democrats in flipping the House in 2018. She's championed Hallmark legislation, including the Affordable Care Act, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and has taken the mantle of party leader in the era of Trump. This woman needs no introduction. But I'm so happy to introduce our very first guest and a woman I'd fangirl over daily, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. So based on your successes in 2018 flipping the House, what do you think are the must-talk-about issues for 2020 presidential candidates? Two overarching issues have to be addressed. One is the disparity of income in our country, and two, in no particular order, two is the climate crisis, which is a challenge to this generation. Yeah, so in that sense, do you think there are any issues that uh, the Democratic voters won't stand for compromise on? Well, I don't know what you mean by it. it won't stand for comp. We don't compromise our principles. We might talk about what the timetable may be and the amount of 
funding that would be there, but you don't compromise your principles, but you negotiate. Right. And I think that's something that an ongoing conversation that I think candidates actually still need to have with a lot of the public, that those may be pieces that you move on on timetable and funding, but that the principles are strong for them to really recognize that the candidates stand there with them. Well, our caucus, people uh, are always giving me credit, says she immodestly, for unifying our caucus. But I don't unify our caucus. Our values unify our caucus. We build consensus around what will get the best possible result for the American people, the boldest common denominator. And we do so with a plan to get it done. So uh, while I... We all have our, shall we say, if I rule the world list, we don't, and uh, we just have to get it done. There's some things like a, a woman's right to choose, which is, that's, there's no compromise on that, you know, and, and, and that. But it is necessary to build consensus, to prioritize in the strongest possible way. And I say to our members, our, our diversity is our strength. That means every diversity, gender, generational, geographic, in any way, including where we are on the philosophical spectrum. Our diversity is our strength. Our unity is our power. So in order to get anything done, we have to win. And so in that sense, you are the only Democrat and really the only person who has defeated Trump, both substantively and in in controlling the media cycle. People didn't think it was something that would be possible, but you did manage to do it. And so what do you think are some lessons there that that some of the presidential candidates can learn from your successes? Who connects? Who has the authenticity to the point that people will say, I know that person cares about a person like me? And that is really who will win the nomination and who will then win the election. Yeah, authenticity is definitely going to be a huge theme this cycle. And, you know, the right has talked a lot about how almost like they're wishing that for someone to win the Democratic presidential nomination, they have to go so far to the left that they can't actually win a general nomination. So what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I don't think we should allow the Republicans to define what is left or not in our party. Uh, they like to call everything socialism, raise the minimum wage, health care for all Americans, all those kinds of things. And that isn't, we can't let them mischaracterize what we share as values uh, to reduce the disparity of income in our country, uh, to make sure that we move to many more people having access to health care. The list goes on. But we cannot let them define what are important issues to the American people as socialism. It, it is pretty amazing how a lot of ideas that feel pretty common sense to regular people, to regular voters, end up getting characterized by commentators or by media as being so left, when it's really the people just believe this. They feel it's really common sense for themselves. Yes, and that's because uh, the right wing has decided that they're going to mischaracterize things. But we can't, as I say, we can't let them get away with that. What I do believe is, though, that the middle is a place for raising the minimum wage, having health care for all Americans, uh, you know, the issues that relate to clean air, clean water, public health, uh, our preeminence in the world in terms of green technologies. That's what the Republicans like to describe as left. But it's very centrist. And so coming off of your win, your, the big 2018 House win to become the speaker again, a lot of what what uh, delivered those votes and delivered those districts were women, 
were women who were new voters, were women who had previously been independent or Republican voters and had switched their votes. I think a lot of the political analysis about the next presidential election ends up looking at the 2016 votes, when in reality, we should be looking at the map of 2018. So what do you think that says, how would you uh, advise the candidates on that? Well, here's the thing. The election of 2016 produced a result that I think is going to be beneficial to the country. The day after the president's inauguration, women marched. It wasn't political. It was spontaneous. It was organic. They marched around what they believed in, whether it was women's health or whether it was about gun safety or immigration or fairness in our economy or a juvenile justice, any array of subjects with shared values, but some different emphasis. We said women marched. Now women must run. Women ran, women voted, then women got elected, and now women lead in in stronger numbers. And how we won that, though, was uh, to make the differentiation that things can be better, and women were taking the lead in their own way, not in a political way. In addition to that, in 2018, we made a decision to win, to own the ground with our mobilization, to message in the mainstream because that's what works in the districts that we needed to win, which was but those shared values of all of our districts in the country, and to uh, have the financial, the third M, the money, to present the message and the mobilization, to manage it all very well. Ben Ray Lujan was our chairman. He did a great job. Shrey Bustos now taking it uh, into this election to grow our numbers. So I would say to anyone running, as I say, I... My role is to make sure we have a strong Democratic majority in the House next time. You can't win unless you own the ground. And you can't own the ground unless you have inspiration, a message. And you can't do all of that unless you have the resources to get it done. That's why I'm so pleased that our small donor base has increased so much. So so much of our support comes from, what, average of $19 a person um, contributions. And so given all of that, what what do you think is the future of the Democratic Party? Oh, my gosh. The future of the Democratic Party is a great one. The basic fundamental difference between the two parties is how you view the role of government. Uh, Where on the spectrum should there be a role in terms of Medicare and affordable health care? Should there be regulations and protections for clean air, clean water? Uh, Is there a place for worker safety, that has to be something that is in the public domain. So what is the public role versus the laissez-faire role? Uh, We don't want any more government than we need, but we do need to have governance. And uh, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer uh, in the minds of many of us who have been fighting this fight and tried to be gracious and and, um, respectful of other views that too much is at stake in terms of respecting our Constitution, respecting our land, that our beautiful public land that is a gift of God, and that they are degrading our Constitution, which they are not respecting. Our people, a nation of, of immigrants that, who we are, that uh, they are not respecting. And our values, which they undermine when they give a tax break that benefits 83% of the tax break benefits the top 1%. And then they say, we'll pay for it by cutting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps, Pell Grants, etc. So it's about 
our Constitution. It's about our environment. It's about who we are as a people and respecting that. And it's about our values. And speaking to the broad coalition that you do manage, we've spoken about this before, there is an article that I really, really loved, a profile on you, that talked about, one, how you're the only person to really be able to take on and defeat Trump because you have a lot of experience with toddlers and children. <laughs> uh, but, but the larger message in the article about how um, you were prepared to take on the diverse and manage the large coalition of the Democratic Party, particular caucus, because you had so much experience managing your children. Well, let me just say that I would never diminish the dignity of children by comparing them to Trump. Uh, No, that's that's, something else. If if you want to say that I was a manager, okay. But uh, childlike is a beautiful thing. It has a a dignity about it that he does not share. Uh, But I do do believe, and I say this to moms, uh, there's nothing more challenging than raising a family. You're, uh, You're... a driver, a cook, you manage logistics and quartermaster, interpersonal relationships. It's about diplomacy. It's about conflict avoidance. It's about respecting the space of each person. It's, it's, um, it, it is helpful in terms of interactions with other people. In terms of uh, comparing that to dealing with the president, I always say to people, don't say it's like dealing with a child. Children have dignity. Children have dignity. But I do think that there is this one point. This president has thought that he can get away with saying anything. He tried to say that in that meeting that we had with Chuck Schumer, and we called him on what he was saying. He has, I guess, uh, been treated that way in his life. And we have to make sure that the public knows what the reality is. So if managing expectations and the rest is something that moms know, then uh, that experience um, helped me. Uh, But it really is important to just say to him, that's not true. And I'm not sure people have ever really said that to him in a way uh, that um, he felt the way we are saying it to him now. Right. And even, you know, aside from the president, even in terms of managing your own politics within your own caucus, in terms of managing the other members as well, part of why I loved this conversation and this article so much is because it felt like it really celebrated the skills, just, you know, some of the names, the skills that you just named, but, you know, the skills that you gain when being a parent instead of just saying, oh, and we allow them to also be a parent in the workplace. Well, I, I think the word that I would, that captures it the best way is respect, you, as a parent, you respect your children, you respect their challenges, their uh, aspirations, as well as their apprehensions. You respect their space and time, et cetera. And with um, members of Congress, it's about respect, respecting every single person's point of view, respecting the people they represent, and making sure that in our consensus building, every, every voice is heard and none is uh, any less important than the other. It's actually quite glorious, because what we see now is a Democratic Party, which we are a diverse party. That's the beauty of it. The beauty is in the mix. We're not a rubber stamp for anybody. 
The beauty is in the mix. Our diversity is our strength. Our unity is our power. And I think that's one thing that President Trump has learned, that we will be unified in, in a way that uses our power to fight the fight. What kind of lens do you think some of the voters are going to be taking? And what do you think that we can hope to, to see from the candidates for them to really attract the voters in a way that is authentic, as you mentioned? Well, in this room, you see the president, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, practically nothing. But in order for public sentiment to weigh in, people have to know. So I think we have to have whatever it is, clarity of message, repetition of message that addresses the kitchen table issues that people are concerned about, not the boardroom table issues of corporate America to trickle down on families. Healthcare is the preeminent issue because it's not only a health issue, it's a financial security issue for people. And that job security and that building the infrastructure of our country in a green way remains uh, something that resonates with the public. They understand infrastructure. They understand their health care needs. They understand a lot more. Uh, but the candidates for president will, I think, have pretty much shared vision about our country. Some are more knowledgeable about one subject or another, but all of them, I think, um, put forth um, a degree of knowledge that commands respect and respect for their judgment based on that knowledge. I do think that it's important to have a plan on how you're going to get things done, and many people say, go to my website, see my plan. But how they convey that will be how people make a judgment as well. But the most important thing is who connects. Who connects? Show them what's in your mind and, and, and your agenda is very, very important, of course. But they want to see what's in your heart. What is in your heart connects to their needs, whether it's health care, whether it's job security, whether it's the education of their children meets their needs. Right. So many of the, the things that either the opposition or commentators use are basically like coded questions around whether a candidate really connects or not. Right. They ask, are they really from here? Do they have kids? They're sort of like coded questions to understand if the candidate, they feel like the candidate connects. Yeah, but I, I, who cares what they say? It, what's important is what the candidate says. And the, again, the authenticity that the candidate exudes. I believe in the American people. I believe in their wisdom and their ability to detect what's in their interest. Uh, I'm very sad about what happened in 2016 because everything we talk about cannot amount to victory unless we own the ground, have clarity and repetition of our message and, again, uh, have the resources to make sure people are aware of that. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. I, I think this is an opportunity. I think the best manifestation of the opportunity it is is when the women marched. They just said, you had your inauguration, we're having our march. And it has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with values. And you have to show people values unite Issues divide in some ways. But again, if you want to be an executive or a speaker, it's a little bit different than if you want to be a member of Congress and the rest. It requires all the same vision, knowledge, strategic thinking, and connection and authenticity. 
but when they see a person who wants to be the chief executive of a Congress or a country, they have to see your confidence that you will act, that you have enough confidence in what you believe, that you have guidance from people who know more, and you have no hesitation uh, to engage the services of those who know, may know more than you on a subject, but that you have your ear to the ground as to what the public really wants to see happen in terms of results. And you see who will be presidential, who is willing to be respectful of other views, confident enough to act, humble enough to listen. Okay, so switching gears a little bit. What is on your playlist these days? What is the speaker jamming out to? What kind of music are you jamming out to these days? (laughs) Well, everybody knows. I mean, I don't know if everybody knows, but I try to keep out of the way of the music of my children and now my grandchildren. But we have three generations of love for U2 and Bono. Their song, One, if you look at the words of it, is so important to us now. No, again, as I say, I try to keep out of my uh, children's generations of music, but uh, I love all music. Do we ever have a three-generation Pelosi family dance party? A oh, YouTube yeah, yeah, we do. Party. We dance a lot. <laughs> I do believe uh, that you cannot dance enough. Well, I hope there's a lot more reason to dance this election <laughs> night. Thank you so oh, much, my, Speaker yeah. Pelosi. We are incredibly appreciative of having you on, and thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Well, we intend to win. We made a decision to win, and therefore you make every decision in favor of winning. And that's what we intend to do and help to win the Senate and to win the White House at the same time. It's an absolute must for the country. We will achieve our goal. Thank you for listening to this very first episode of your primary playlist. Speaker Pelosi helped to lay out what it's going to take for Democrats to be successful. Over the course of this season, we're going to be diving into these issues and trying to clear the fog from a very crowded Democratic field. Stick around for episode two to hear from the one, the only, Cecile Richards. We'll talk with her about abortion and the power of women voters. For more from Speaker Pelosi, you can find her on Twitter at Speaker Pelosi. For behind-the-scenes photos and extras from this show, you can follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the entire Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time.